Hey everyone, it's Callie Fensel bringing you this intro on November 21st, 2023. The United States is celebrating Thanksgiving this Thursday, which of course has the element of gratitude. At Breaking Badness, we're thankful for all of the guests and excellent conversations we've had so far this year. One of which being our discussion with Champ Clark III and Stephen Drenning Blaylock from Quadrant Security on how they thwarted Black Basta. Black Basta has been back in the news recently as they have claimed responsibility for a cyber attack on the Toronto Public Library, along with stealing data from numerous U.S. electric companies. Champ and Steven's story is gripping, and we hope if you didn't have a chance to catch it the first time we shared it, you take this opportunity now. Again, if you're observing Thanksgiving, we hope you have a wonderful holiday. If not, just know that we are grateful for you, our listeners. We'll be back next week with an all-new episode, which is our anticipated book club episode to be exact. So stay tuned and thank you. up this week on Breaking Badness. In this special report episode, we learn about a re-emergence of the Black Basta ransomware group. We'll talk with Champ Clark and Stephen Drenning Blaylock of Quadrant Information Security to get all the details. Plus, we'll get their gold guidance and grievances. With that, Breaking Badness is next. Welcome to our special Voices from InfoSec episode of Breaking Badness, recorded on January 20th, 2023. With us today are a few folks from Quadrant Security, Champ Clark, CTO, and Stephen Dranning Blaylock, Threat Analyst. And also along with us is our CTO at Domain Tools, Sean McNee. In this episode, we'll discuss the company's recent discovery of a breach made by the re-emerging Black Basta Ransomware Group. And by the way, I'm your host for the day, Tim Helming. I forgot to say that earlier. With that, welcome, Champ and Steve. We're very excited to have you on the podcast today. Thank you, Tim. It's very great to be here. Yeah, very, very good to be here. Thank you. So uh, you guys, uh, tell us a little bit about Quadrant and uh, where you're based, and then uh, I'd love to hear how each of you got into InfoSec and, and what your background is. Sure, I'll start out. My name is Champ Clark. I'm the CTO here at Quadrant Information Security. We're located in Jacksonville, Florida, and we're primarily a MDR service. Uh, we help monitor people's networks and help them mitigate breaches and do IR and containment and things like that. I got interested in security probably in the 1980s. Uh, I'm of the age of war dialing and things like that and grew up in the computer industry as a whole, but uh, really got interested in security as a, as a kid and a teenager kind of growing up into it and just kept on going and now I'm in my 50s and still doing it. Were you uh, were you a 2600 subscriber? 2600 subscriber. Uh, I've actually been on the show and met Emmanuel a few times. Started a VoIP hacking group called Telefreak um, years ago as well. Got really into voice over IP. So yeah, uh, kind of been into it for a while. Professionally got into it probably in the early or late 90s, early 2000s. Awesome. That's great. That's fun. Yeah. Freaking is such a cool on-ramp into uh, InfoSec and into to technology in general. I, I did not really touch it a whole lot, but, um, but I was always kind of interested in it. And I do like playing around with vintage telephony gear, actually. So awesome. Steve, how about you? Any, any freaking in your background or uh, what was your on-ramp? Uh, no, no telefreaking. Um, hi, my name is Stephen Drenning Blaylock. Um, I work for Quadrant Information Security. I've been here for just under three years. Next month is my three-year mark. Um, let's see. I have been in InfoSec um, for just about three years. <laughs> I started as a stock analyst, um, and then once I got promoted to senior analyst, I started dabbling in um, offensive security as well as uh, malware analysis. Um, and then just after my two-year mark here at the company, I started doing that full-time. Um, I got into it. Uh, I actually don't have a background in tech as far as um, a degree. I have a degree in psychology. Um, 
got out, didn't get a, a master's, so there wasn't a lot of job opportunities for me. Uh, so I thought I would reinvent myself. I got my A+, plus, Net+, plus, Tech+. Plus. And while I was studying that, I kind of fell in love with security. And then one thing led to another. And now I have the uh, job of my dream. <laughs> Well, and to, to go back and expand an acronym that was mentioned earlier, for some folks that may not be totally familiar, MDR, Managed Detection and Response. So that's the, that's the essence of what you all focus on uh, there at Quadrant. A hundred percent. We um, specialize by putting sensors in the field to, to monitor for um, logs like Windows event logs, syslogs from Linux servers, things like that. Uh, it's an open source piece of software that I started developing in 2009 uh, called Sagan, um, which you can find on GitHub. And then we also use software like Suricata, which is a great IDS engine that we use for everything from pull packet capture to pack, uh, just regular packet analysis. So we some of the tools that we use, but that's primarily what we install. And then we help mitigate by being able to communicate with clients' firewalls or their endpoints to help stop and mitigate threats. Gotcha. Good stuff. Well, hey, let's dive into uh, the essence of what we're what we're here to talk about today and learn more about Black Basta. And Sean, I, you know, I uh, uh, I should give you the microphone here for a little while as well. So um, it's great to have you on Breaking Badness again. Yeah, it's fantastic to be here. Uh, I guess you know, Tim, you and I will kind of trade off. You know, having uh, you know asking questions, providing color commentary, just kind of to tease out the, the really cool bits of the story from Champ and Steve. Uh, so, you know, maybe we should just start at the beginning. So I have to assume, right, this was related to a customer slash client that you had. But my understanding is this first came through from, from a vendor, right? So can you tell me a little bit about how this breach was first carried out? Yeah, um, Mr. Drenning, I'll let you kind of go into that uh, if you'd like to. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. Um, yes, yeah, so it started with a third-party um, company getting compromised. Um, now, as far as how they were compromised, we can't really speak to that. Um, but leveraging their access, they started a very targeted uh, spear phishing campaign um, against our client. Um, actually, one of the... Um, phishing emails was actually sent through an ongoing email chain. So it was interesting. You're able to read it and third party client, third party client, and then the threat actor client. Um, so that was, that was kind of a new one. Um, so what, uh, what the threat actor did was as uh, part of the phishing email, they attached a ISO file, uh, essentially a disk image. And that actually contained the Quackbot malware so uh, what the Quackpot is, is it's a uh, uh, handy tool for your threat actors. It works as a backdoor. Um, immediately, this thing started calling out to command and control servers or C2 domains. Um, after a short time, I was able to download a second stage, which was later to be determined as a Brute Patel um, from an IP in Russia. And then from there, that's when things started going very, very sideways, very, very quickly. Um, later, while we were going through the logs, we were able to serve around this time. They started doing Kerber roasting, which is uh, querying a uh, Kerberos or authentication server to start pulling um, poorly encrypted uh, certificates uh, that you can actually go and you can crack the credentials uh, relatively easy. Those use uh, RC4 encoding and all of that fun stuff. Following the download of the Brute Retell, uh, we also started seeing a couple different things going across the network uh, through SMB, um, and that would be the actual ransomware itself, as well as other files that were associated with um, uh, Strike, other sorts of command and control infrastructure. So we mentioned Brute Retell, by the way, on uh, we did a story on it a few months ago, but for any folks that didn't happen to hear that story or haven't uh, memorized all the details, can you just give us a quick rundown on what Brute Retell is? Uh, yes, it was originally designed as a pen testing tool. Um, yeah, weren't they all? <laughs> that's correct, yes. Um, Brute Retell, uh, Cobalt Strike, uh, which we saw later in this uh, um, 
later in this incident. Um, both of them were designed to be fantastic pen testing tools. It's kind of your all-in-one tool. You put it on your client's infrastructure, and now you have access to everything. Um, if I remember correctly, they started seeing cracked versions of the software in June or July. So it wasn't much longer after that started popping up on the dark web that um, Black Vasta looks like they got a hold of it and started implementing it. Yeah, we uh, uh, that time frame sounds about right. And what w- what's interesting, by the way, is some folks say, well, you know, Brute Retell is kind of the new Cobalt Strike, but you just mentioned that you're seeing both of them in this incident. So I'll get out of the way and let you keep talking about the incident. Actually, it's interesting. Yes, you would think that they would choose either one or the other, but I think the timelines kind of come into play. Um, the Cobalt Strike's been... There's been cracked versions out there for a couple years now, so it's very possible, and this is purely conjecture, that the Quackbot that they were using um, was designed to be used with uh, Brute Retell, and then they fell back after they got a hold, a foothold in the uh, client's infrastructure to something that they were known and familiar with. Um, I don't have proof of that, but that's just kind of um, my take on it. Kind of makes sense. I would say for for the most part... Um the clients, uh, even though it was uh, part of a third party that they trusted, the majority of users, don't, I don't think, look like they fell for the phishing campaign. They did have two particular people who actually fell for it and, and, and went through it and, you know, uh, did all the bad things, clicked on the stuff they shouldn't be. Um, but from there, once they got a foothold within the network, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Drenning, is, is there was about a... 30-hour dwell time between them trying to figure out what they were going to exfil and things like that. But uh, go ahead, Mr. Training. Uh, no, Champ, you're 100% correct. Um, after about 30 hours, they were able to kind of get the lay of the land and start exfilling the data. Um, and it was on that exfil that we were actually able to detect and alert on this. Um, I remember going through and looking at the timestamps on the logs and the timestamps on the alerts and timestamps on the email. And it was something like within two seconds of the data transfer actually out of the client's infrastructure, we were able to detect an alert on it. And then within two minutes from the alerting, um, our SOC analyst, Josh Hubner, was actually on the phone with the client saying, hey, (laughs) something's not right, guys. (laughs) What we found interesting about it, too, just to be completely transparent on it, is the alert that actually popped up was uh, was related to FTP. It was a, that, that's what Blackbasta was using was a thing called R-Clone to uh, get the data out. And they were just using plain text FTP, which presented some other interesting opportunities. However, uh, during the um, FTP, one of the signatures that, that was triggered was um, a possible FTP buffer overflow. It was interesting to me because the analyst looked at it and immediately saw this is not a FTP overflow. However, the data within the payload looks very, very suspicious, and it was, happened to be going to an IP address in Miami. And so using kind of like that human intelligence, really, like saying, I, don't, I have a bad gut feeling about this, and then picking up the phone and calling the customer and saying, I'm having a bad gut feeling about this, and them confirming and starting to look into it allowed us to start really trying to triage and mitigate the attacker really, really early on. Now, you said they were using plain text FTP for exfil, but they were exfilling files that they had already encrypted, correct? So it's not like plain text was just running across the wire. Is nope. That, do we have that right? No. It, so they do a double extortion uh, scheme. So as soon as they found themselves on a file server with valuable information, it was just flat out R clone unencrypted FTP traffic. They didn't pre-encrypt it and then try to get it out. They were trying to get the data out of the door as fast as possible. We even noticed later on in, uh, and more observations, they were not only FTPing it out, but we have a suspicion they were actually FTPing it to their target site, their their exfil site in Miami, and then turning around and then exfilling it out, or taking copies of it and moving that to, I think it was a server in Utah. I could be wrong about that. But um, anyways, uh, no, it was playing out FTP. At this point, the network has not been encrypted. 
So as far as they know, we don't have any clues to what's going on, but we actually do. So we're watching and really working with the client to come up with what are the next steps, because there's some inherent problems that you have here. If you stop the FTP exfil, then the, uh, the black boss team, they're immediately going to know that, that we're onto them and they're going to immediately start encrypting things. But you can't let the exfil also go on because it's exfilling data. So you're kind of caught in the situation. But um, I guess we could probably get a little bit more into that as we as we kind of go along. Did you want to talk more, uh, Mr. Drenning, about the, um, the attack and the methods and TTPs and things like that? Yes. So what Mr. Clark was saying is 100% correct. Um, they do this double extortion method. Not only are they uh, saying that they are going to encrypt your data or they, after the ransomware has run its course, not only have they encrypted your data, but they say that if you do not pay, they will release your information on the dark web. Um, now, at this point in the compromise, nothing had been encrypted, though uh, we kept seeing something being transferred throughout the uh, client's network. Uh, that was the client's name underscore s.exe. And it was later determined that that was the Black Basta ransomware itself. Um, there was a couple of interesting things that uh, really came out of this because of some detection methods that um, was kind of a surprise to me, actually. Um, Mr. Clark, uh, he, with his you know, training experience, he actually started looking at logs in real time. And he can probably speak to this a little bit better than I can, but he started seeing some strange yes. clipboard logging. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> to back up a little bit, uh, when we were still kind of in the middle of all this, trying to get our bearings about what was going on, um, one of the logging techniques that we'd use is we use on servers, especially clipboard logging. Um, the clipboard logs don't get stored on the local server, but they're sent to our appliance. So we can actually sometimes see what commands are being cut and paste. We'd, as I said, we do this primarily on servers. At the time, we were, as I said, we were trying to get our um, bearings about us. We knew that files were being transferred. As he mentioned, the client underscore s dot exe were being transferred over SMB. And at one point, I just started saying, well, let's just like, let's just like start watching some real data and see what's going on. And sure enough, we saw some RDP traffic going to some strange places. And talk about luck. It was just one of those things where as the data was going past the screen, that I looked and said, whoa, 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 back up. What was that? I mean, the odds that I saw it in the first place was pretty remote. I'm confident we would have seen it later, but it was one of those just interesting moments where for whatever reasons, the, uh, uh, the gods are shining their, on you so that you find this kind of stuff. But uh, it was, uh, if I remember correctly, it was an RDP session or a, uh, uh, that was taking place to an IP address that did not look, look related to our client. So what, what does that mean, that a, a machine from your client had an RDP session out to the attacker's infrastructure? So we saw later on, whenever we looked at the attacker, they, ha they really operate a lot of really good operational security. But one thing that they did do poorly uh, was that they would use the client's inf or the, our client's infrastructure or their target's infrastructure and then turn around and log back into their own infrastructure, which gave us some really, really unique um, monitoring uh, opportunities. So, for instance, um, as you guys kind of noticed, like we were talking about ClearText FTP. Well, it's ClearText technically things like the password that BlackBosta was using was available. But then we would also notice, um, you know, them reconnecting to their internal backends, for instance, back to their Xfil server from the client's network, which really brings up some, as I said, some interesting monitoring uh, opportunities. Gotcha. So, okay. So what ha you have us on the edge of our seats. So what happened next? And that's amazing about the happening to catch it in real time in the logs, by the way. So, you know, don't try this at home, folks. You're not, not <laughs> going to luck out most of the time, but that's pretty cool. Right. I mean, at that point, we had a pretty good idea that fishy stuff was going on. But you you guys know how it is when you're in the middle of that incident and you're, you, you know, you're working 16, 18, 20 hours a day and you're trying to get your head completely wrapped around from patient zero right down to where you are now. Um, 
yeah, don't try that at home. But we had a pretty good lay of what was going on. But little things just like that started popping up. But talk about luck. I, I couldn't believe it. It's all in the timing, as they say. Okay, so where are we now in the course of things? So at this point, uh, data is being exfilled. Um, they've Kerber roasted uh, the domain controllers. So at this point, we assume that they're already uh, cracking passwords offline. Uh, we don't know how many at this time, but we assume that um, that that's in process. Um, we've got multiple files. Um, both the what would later be determined to be the black box uh, malware, uh, I'm sorry, ransomware uh, spread throughout the servers. Um, we started looking again at those clipboard logs that Mr. Clark had, um, again, stroke of luck, stumbled upon. Um, something else that we noticed uh, was comments that were in Russian and as well as the uh, underscore s dot exe dash bomb. So that kind of started getting our uh, the hairs on the back of our neck standing up, saying, "Okay, this looks like it's getting ready to escalate." So it was around this time we started talking with the client, and they came to the conclusion that, "Hey, you know, now's the time. Let's start uh, resetting their passwords that we know that they're using." So at this point, there had been a couple admin accounts that were doing some uh, hinky stuff. Uh, so you're like, okay, let's reset this. Let's you know, block what we can and let's kick them out of the system. Well, well, back there was actually one one thing that happened just slightly before that. So with the client, we we were aware that once we started changing things, we hadn't shown our hand to the the threat actor yet. So we got in a conference call with the client and said, look, this thing when we start resetting passwords and stop the FTP traffic can go sideways really really quickly. Can you either drop ACLs or go to the data center? I don't care what it is. But whenever we give you the nod, we need you to kill this connection. It's like the second that we think, see things start to go sideways. Um, so before uh, the conversation, and correct me if I'm wrong, Mr. Drenning, but before we had that conversation, we had actually had it arranged for somebody to be on site to ready to drop ACLs or... Uh, pull cables, I don't care how it's done, just to pull it offline in case that we would need to, which we would need to. That's 100% correct. Yes, sir. Uh, one of uh, one of our clients' team members, one of the um, higher up gentlemen in the networking team had driven to their data center and was literally sitting in front of the servers with hands on cables waiting for things to go sideways. Um, and then <laughs> after they started... Oh, and then ahead. it was the... the client exe dash bomb i you know like that never sounds good if you have a flag that is dash bomb yes yes <laughs> <laughs> right you, you see the dash bomb you're like okay i, I don't know what it, this does but you know it's not going to be good um so they started locking out the accounts and they started blocking some ips and then their accounts started getting locked out and what we found out later is that they had multiple connections that we were not aware of at the time, and they noticed their other connections dying. So um, they ran a script that went through, and every single one of their admins, they reset their password. So it was at that point they realized things have gone terribly sideways, and the gentleman at the data center got the word, and he started pulling cables. Uh, and that was only 56 hours between the initial fish to somebody physically pulling cables out of data center. Wow, 56 hours. Uh, but uh, just to make sure I understand this correctly, uh, you saw the, the client exe dash bomb, uh, then you started seeing the threat actor start changing their tactics, realizing things might have been going sideways because you were in, in making your changes, cutting the FTP connections for doing what you're doing to prevent this from continuing. And then they full on retaliated and started resetting everybody's passwords. Correct. Correct. So they they had pretty much taken over control of the network. Not only that, they then started to encrypt uh, a couple of ESXi servers, um, which you know we already validated with backups for and whatnot. And then right around that, then things start moving very very quickly. So right then, I remember getting on the phone 
with, I believe, the CISO at our clients and saying, okay, remember what we were talking about, about things going sideways? We're there now. So we need to pull the connection. Are you ready to? You'd be surprised. A lot of clients get nervous about doing this. This, this particular client was... They knew, they understood the gravity of the situation. We've been in other incidents like this, especially with uh, attackers that have a uh, foothold in the network. And I like, guess probably wouldn't be surprised, you've probably seen it yourself, where the client wants to hold on to the hope that they can, you know, outmaneuver these guys. But this is like Black Boss's job. This is what they do, you know, they're, they're very good at it. So the, the fastest way to mitigate it was actually just to say, are we on the same page? Client was on the same page. And then we pulled the connection. At that point, with the connections down, you're kind of hitting that big pause button on the video game saying, okay, hold up here. It was a lot of regrouping. But now whenever you pull that connection, of course, our team also loses connections. So we can no longer you know, keep doing the analysis. Luckily, we could... And so you didn't have somebody on site uh, physically. Then. At this point, we right? were... That is 100% correct. We are all remote at this point. So they had pulled it. So then at that point, what we requested the, uh, we did have a, a, one of our guys go to one of the data centers and we use these cradle points to hook directly up to our servers so that, and they, they're just 5G connections. They're, you know, cell phone re uh, related kind of connections so that we could gain access back into the servers to continue researching what was going on. Obviously, in order to mitigate it, we have to understand where patient zero is, P zero is, uh, how they got into the network, what's been touched. Luckily, uh, Drenning, was this on a, was this like a Friday or a Thursday that this started? If I remember correctly, this happened on a Thursday evening or a Friday evening. Right. I think so, it was a Friday. Afternoon at about a uh, quarter to five is usually when things go really <laughs> bad. Right. <laughs> right. Well, and joking aside, in this particular case, I wanted it to be closer to a weekend because then that means their staff isn't going to be there. And so if the network's down for a little bit longer, they're less likely to have users yelling at the team and whatnot. But luckily, as I said, this CISO, he understood the gravity of it. So he was willing to uh, take our advice and, and continue forward. Um, so now we had like a little bit of time to actually start looking at things. That's when people like dreading. And by the way, we had multiple people on this team um, who all did excellent, excellent work. But then everybody kind of takes over, you know, their own role. Uh, Drenning was doing a lot of the malware research, like looking at the executables and things like that. Then we had other teams that were going through and doing log analysis to understand how they were pivoting. And uh, I'll let you continue on Drenning because we noticed some pivoting that had been happening in their network and things like that. Um, one of the, and I hesitate to say the, my favorite things that I saw while we were reviewing the logs um, was with the RDP connections that they had, uh, they were actually able to just drag and drop uh, Cobalt Strike Beacons onto remote hosts. <laughs> uh, we were able to gather that through the clipboard logging. Terrible and awesome. Right. That was the my re response. I, I remember looking at it like, this can't be right. And then I poked out a little bit more. I'm like, holy cow, that's brilliant. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I don't want to give them too much credit. <laughs> no, they still suck. Right. Exactly. 100%. So as Mr. Clark said, at, at this point, we were kind of in that pause. Um, we'd broken up into a couple different teams. I was working with another gentleman, The um, um, our detection engineer here um uh to help look at this malware and we our plan of attack was we would start with the phishing campaign and we would work forward and so much information was brought to light from these we're using the iocs that or the indicators of compromise that we're able to determine by looking at the um at the malware we were able to give that to the team that was looking at the logging and we were able to piece together a fairly accurate timeline. Well, then moving forward, you know, so at this point in time, the client's right, notable number of servers are no longer connected to the internet. And this is the, the weekend, right? But we do want to try and get the client restored and, and back to operation. Um, how, did, how did that process go? Were there any hiccups or gotchas you found? Oh, sure. that process. So 
again, we're the uh, MDR company, so we're helping them with a lot of the mitigation and IR. Uh, they had um, cyber uh, insurance, so that kind of kicked in at that point. And part of their insurance policy what required that a, another third-party uh, IR firm come on, and which is fine. Actually, we I actually enjoy working with other IR firms. It's it's fun to see the differences in approaches and uh, how people deal with these kind of problems and and how they share information and whatnot. But anyway, so uh, they had called in another IR firm. It was kind of interesting when they first came in. They had said, uh, you know, our, our client said, we want you to talk to our uh, MDR provider. And so we started the conversation with them. And the approach was, so what do you guys think what happened kind of sarcastically? And our team was like, well, we know it's a black box. It's black box related. This is the, you know, yada, yada, yada. And then I remember the gentleman saying, yeah, sure. Uh, why do you think that? And then our team started rolling through everything that from the logs, from the clipboard to PowerShell to how they were trying to turn off EDR services to. And then at one point, I remember the gentleman on the other side saying, yep, that sounds like Black Boston. <laughs> like, basically, we, we weren't kidding around. We understood exactly what was going on. But the third party team came in and they primarily took over for the cleanup section of we were still involved in the research of how the whole incident took place and, and some information thereafter. So they came in with a process to help clean up their network, basically using the data that we supplied them, for instance, like the file hashes of, you know, client underscore exe, uh, client underscore s exe, and some fake, um, there was a file like it was called ticket.xls, which they had hidden, and a few other things and some batch files that they had. Uh, we were able to handle, hand some of that information to them, and then using like an EDR tool, they could go back through and uh, clean up different machines that particular way. Um, our main goal at that point, while the machines are being uh, cleaned up, is to continue doing research and collecting IOCs. Because at some point, this network's going to come back online. And whatever it does, we need to have our, our detection ready and looking for the TTPs and IOCs that we've previously discovered. Because there's always that nerve-wracking moment where you're you think you have a pretty good understanding, a pretty good lay of the land, but you understand that everything's going to come back online. And then there's always that little thing in the back of your head of, okay, what did I miss? And if I have missed something, we're going to be right back into scenario all over again. So our team was um, uh, doing a spectacular job on just pulling that data and coming up with everything from file hashes to IP addresses for uh, different uh, C2 uh, connections to domains and stuff like that. That that must have been pretty nerve-wracking, that magical moment everything went back online and you've updated your, your rules for detection and you're like, uh, are we okay? And so at that point, when you put it back on, obviously at that point, the uh, the attacker knows that you know, right? And so if you have... Um, new rules in place to deny connections to all of the known C2. And then the nerve wracking part, I guess, is are there, is there unknown C2, you know, what Correct. are these things going to maybe call back to that we didn't think of blocking and so forth. Um, so I, you know, I have a question. This is probably, this is a terribly naive question, but, um, but it's a curiosity for me and other, other people might think about this too. Like, is there ever a, a play where instead of, chopping the connection you say well let's use qos or something for evil and let's just make it really really slow but not dead um buy yourself a little time slow down the xfil but maybe possibly not tip your hand is that is that a completely ridiculous idea no or is that something that you might no ever no do? i think it's actually a, a pretty decent uh actually it's a good idea i think if you could slow the xfil you might be able to buy yourself a little bit more time in that uh uh, for, yeah, and they'll just think, great, our, our victim has a crappy ISP. Right, right. I mean, one reason I think the, unlike traditional ransomware groups that come in and just encrypt, they're they're trying this double extortion method, which obviously has been very successful for them. They've, they make 
uh, from talking with other IR firms have done negotiations with Black Basta. These guys do make a lot of money doing this, but through the double extortion. The downside of double extortion, it takes a lot of time, to your point, to actually get the data out of the network. So that increased dwell time and then your bandwidth going up gives you an opportunity to actually see the attack as it's in progress. But to your point, to be if you're your network team has the ability to do some QoS magic on the FT, the current FTP connection, then that would probably be a very good idea because then you could slow it down just to buy you a little bit more time to to do uh, to do that. Obviously, the second that you know a password gets changed, like they were using some service level accounts that had uh, administrative access and trying to be sneaky. But they, you know, the second that they saw one of those service admin accounts uh, or service accounts get changed, you know, all bets were off. Um, so it, it's, it's like one of those tricky situations, but I like that. That's a good one. I like the QIS idea. That's a really good idea. You, you can use it. I'll license it to you for free. Oh, thank, thank you very much. <laughs> okay, so we're at the, the nerve wracking moment. The network connection is going to be restored. So what happens now? Uh, well, I mean, pretty much at that part. So, uh, you know, we, we got... There was a couple of servers that did have to be restored from backup. Um, obviously, the client is very nerve-wracked and probably on very little sleep, as most of us are in these type of situations. Um, and for the most part, it came back online. We then started monitoring. We figured that Black Boss would probably try their hand again at the phishing campaign. Uh, which I believe we saw happen. Of course, by this point, we had had mitigations already in place for things like IS, uh, uh, ISOs and, and devices. Uh, is that correct, Mr. Dring? Yes, sir. That's correct. Um, we were monitoring for uh, any file that ended in .iso um, coming through the email. And I seem to recall there was four or five legitimate alerts that popped up that we could trace back to, yes, this is likely the threat actor uh, where they were trying to, uh, well, <laughs> hit replay on everything. Um, but because of the IOCs that we were able to give the, um, the client's team, they were able to get that into that um, uh, tool that the incident response company was able to provide them. And it was, if I remember correctly, it was automatically screening and uh, deleting the content. That's correct. And we also, by this point, had access to our backend, our SOC had access to alerts coming in from the EDR tool. So now it's just mostly a due diligence kind of or not due diligence, but you're just, you know, kind of waiting and seeing. You're sitting and waiting and watching data and you're watching for quite a while. Um, what it did allow our team to do was then do some deeper dives into the uh, into the threat actor. So, for instance, not only into the malware portion, which we have a white paper going up, uh, I think next week about this. Um, that goes into really kind of the gory details of everything that happened, but then also to be able to go through and look at things like clipboard logs and other monitoring that we did, so that we could understand a little bit further into Black Basta and how their back end operations worked, like. Obviously, we're only seeing the data exfil side of it, but we could see some things. For instance, um, they, from our research and looking at it, it, looks like they use purpose-built like hardware that they rented out from different ISPs. And there's probably about we saw about five or six um, hosting environments that would um, that they were probably using um, within that particular environment. For example. Uh, the server that our client's data was attempting to be exfilled to, uh, we had also noticed there was about 20 other companies that were also going under the exact same attack concurrently while this was going on. Um, so that server was getting in pretty heavy use. And if you do the numbers on that, we were estimating, you know, on a low end, like let's say the average ransomware is $200,000. We've heard uh, everything from about 400000 for a Black Basta and higher. You're looking at multiple millions of dollars that could be uh, uh, involved. One interesting note is we, we did notify the hosting provider and said, look, we've got kind of a situation here. We know that this server is being uh, used in a potential ransomware attack. Not potential. It is a ransomware attack. And they're using it for... Um, for data exfiltration. And so we let them know. And of course, the hosting provider contacted us and said, uh, we will let them know what you told us and get it resolved. 
And the last thing that we wanted them to do was take our complaint basically from the to the hosting provider saying, hey, we have somebody, we know somebody's using a service within your network or a server within your network that is doing some highly, highly illegal stuff for them to go through and then tell the people who own the server. It wasn't actually that helpful. It kind of made us more nervous. Um, but yeah. Yeah. It, it kind of sounds like, you know, as part of the, you know, 3D chess, 4D chess that you're playing here, contacting the hosting provider in this case would tip the hand to the bad actor and then they might use that as the rationale for going through and resetting all the passwords and making all those changes. 100%. That sounds kind of kind of sketchy. It was very kind of sketchy. We've had mixed um, results in that. So in the past during other attacks, we've contacted hosting providers who were completely helpful, who who talked with us and really wanted to understand and were really concerned about it. In this particular case, it was, we are going to pass on what you said to the attacker. And that was just like, wow, thanks. Thanks a lot. <laughs> um, but as I said, we were able to notice some things about that. Like, so for instance, whenever they were within uh, our client's network, uh, they would get kind of sloppy and then log back into their own machines with from within the compromised network, which I found actually kind of surprising. I, I was uh, uh, not really, uh, I just found it very, very surprising. Um, but we noticed like on their servers, like so for instance, at the hosting facility where the data was getting exfilled till, they were adamant about making sure when they were managing that server, it was a Debian Linux server that they had had spun up and they had a 14 terabyte hard drive and the primary boot drive was like 256 gig SSD and a 14 terabyte drive. And they have to know that the lifespans of these servers are not for very long or that they could be or confiscated, especially since this was in the United States. But what was interesting is their operational security there, they would not log in. It was either from a, a, an IP address, unless it was over Tor or some third-party VPN service, they were super, super careful about that. But once in the client's network, boom, we'll connect back to our own network left and right. So we found that kind of interesting. Well, I, I, I'm just taking a shot in the dark here, but the assumption being, you know, you as people reviewing the incident after it happened, you might be like, oh, look, they did all this stuff. But that server is now long gone, and they may be moving on to other hosting providers. So it's already burned. Therefore, no no harm from their point of view, right? Um, yeah, I would probably say that's true. I mean, uh, the only thing that we could do from our standpoint is, you know, report the server, you know, get authorities involved. But by this point, the server was already burned, already gone. Um, as it, I didn't know, uh, and this is something that we feel that probably was happening, is that when the data was being exfilled from the client's network to the Black Basta, you know, hosted server, the physical server, um, they knew that the server had a short lifespan. So it looked like what to us what they were doing is then transferring that data to yet another place so that if when that server got snagged, because ultimately it would be, you know, when you have... 20 plus companies that are under a ransomware campaign, it's more than likely that server is going to be taken offline. It looked like they were hedging their bets by doing FTP services all to this, you know, centralized server and then exfiltrating that data yet again to another service. But how they managed that particular system was, um, they were very, very careful about. Yeah, that makes sense to me. It was a staging environment and they would pull data back into their secret private network. Correct, correct. Yeah. That's that's as we could see it. Wow. Uh, but overall, right, like kudos to your team for all this amazing and excellent work in doing the incident response and in, in having the training of your staff to recognize this weird FTP log event and being like, hey, I want to call the client. And then having the great relationship with the client where they're like, yeah, let's look into this. I feel like you saved your clients a lot of pain and heartache and really went above and beyond the call of duty, man. We, thank you very much. And we feel actually exactly the same way. There was at one point during the incident, and I think this probably 
we can all kind of relate to this, but I was talking on the side with the CISO at this company and he said to me, um, how do you get your guys to work so long and so hard? And I said, in this space, as you guys know, in this space in security, it's so interesting. It's not that you're saying, hey, you have to keep working on this. You have a trouble getting people off of it. Like, I'm sure many people who would have been involved with this exact same incident in any kind of situation like this, you get so invested. It's like reading a spy novel or reading a really good book. You don't want to put it down. So you end up like looking at the clock and going, wow, I haven't eaten for 12 hours. I should probably eat. And your wife, flow state, right? You get in that flow state and your wife says, Hey, how about a shower? And then you're like, Oh yeah, I guess I should do. So my point is, is like you get heavily invested in it. And that's where like, all of our team uh, in our case. And I think many other teams would have been exactly the same way. So w- one of the things this is what, one of the things we should talk about is like takeaways for people. Okay. If you're worried about this particular group um, and just keeping your environment as hardened against ransomware as possible, you know, there are going to be certain takeaways from this and I'd love to get your thoughts to summarize those things. One thing that stands out to me is that I actually, I'm a little bit surprised that they didn't already egress filter outbound FTP because, you know, who uses FTP these days? And, and they, may, they may have had, you know, a totally legit business purpose for it. But it, it this could be one of those one of the takeaways I'm thinking might be <laughs> don't allow F, outbound FTP or if you do act all the heck out of it to what it only needs to go to. So this is actually you, you hit the nail on the head right there. One of the biggest issues that we see across the board is uh, uh, egress firewalling, egress firewall filtering. You are, there are like, particularly in this client's network, they had some services that needed FTP, but by and large, that was fairly, fairly small. But what we typically find, and it's really, really, in my experience, hard to get clients to, clients are just people in general to understand is the importance of egress firewalling, making sure you understand what is going out of your network, not just what's coming in. I always equate it to, you know, during wartime, like how a military will try to make the other side go down a certain bridge or down a certain road. You're like narrowing the paths for them to uh, exfiltrate data. And if you narrow the paths, it gives you more of an opportunity to monitor the few paths that are are left for possible exfil. Um, and in this particular case, uh, egress firewalling would have gone a long way. We did notice some of the C2 traffic going over arbitrary ports that ha- that probably would have been blocked. Now, it's not to say that it would have completely prevented it, but anything that you can do to make the attacker's life harder and then also restrict it down so much that you have certain monitoring, you can call it like avenues, uh, makes your life a little bit better. Because if I know that you can't exfiltrate the data on port, you know, 21 FTP or 2222 or whatever it is, then this particular case, and I, and I know what those paths are, then it's easier from as a, on the security side, on the blue team side to say, okay, now I can watch these paths. So you hit it on the head. Egress is probably one of my, my, uh, my pet peeves I go into a lot. (laughs) Yeah, I can totally imagine. So what, what else, like, what are the if you had to sum this up, you know, and your advice to folks that are practitioners out there based on your experience with all this, what are some of the, you know, the top things that you would recommend as takeaways from what you saw? You got some dreading? Um, the other big thing for me is uh, cross-domain trust. Um, something that I didn't mention is inside the client's infrastructure, there were three different domains. And all it took was Kerber roasting on one to spread to the other two. Um, actually, if I remember correctly, they were using accounts from one to attack a, an LDAP, or I'm sorry, a, a Kerberos server on um, a different domain. So if you have multiple domains, lock them down. <laughs> uh, zero trust is always best, uh, but um, I also do recognize that that's not always uh, the easiest practical setup, but that's the thing about security. It's not supposed to be easy. <laughs> Yeah, it's just supposed to be fun. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Um, 
probably another takeaway that we saw is um, knowing where your data is during uh, IR understanding where the logs are and where they are and like how they're being transferred and and even things like packet analysis you know over years you always hear things like you know ids and packet analysis is dead well in our ir incident we had so much data from smb traffic that we could depend on that may not have come from logging but then we also had logs that you know from a packet analysis standpoint we probably wouldn't be able to see from that side so knowing where your data is and where to find it whenever you need it that's what led us to from that you know the initial breach to the IR team and us being able to hand them a lot of information over that weekend and go ahead and start getting, you know, mitigation and start working out the issues there uh, so that we could have that done quickly. And um, obviously two factor everywhere, if you can. <laughs> you did hit on one of the conundrums. I mean, it's like, I, I agree. It doesn't make sense to say that packet analysis is dead. It's not dead. It's a scale problem. It, it, that's what it's become, but it's, there are tools for that. There are definitely tools for that. So like even in this particular case, most of what we are watching is north-south traffic. But because you have different organizations and the way that network was structured, and this is the case for a lot of times, you do pick up some uh, east-west traffic. And that's what we were picking up there. Now, were we getting full east-west? No, we weren't. But we were getting enough that whatever we would see, for instance, it would cross from one network to another and pass through the router in this case, I think we were using probably a span port, so we were able to see it pass through there. We could actually see the SMB traffic, and using open source tools, even like Suricata, would allow us to decode that SMB traffic and then figure out what file was being transferred, what's the nature of it, like, and things of that, uh, like that, so we could quickly get a copy of that particular file or write signatures to say, watch for you know this kind of um, lateral movement happening within the network. So what and. IDS isn't what it was, and packet analysis isn't what it was in the 1990s or like even early 2000s, I should say. Um, you know, it's it's a lot. It's we still find that kind of data very valuable, but you have to marry it up with other data. It's not one thing, one service, one product that you can depend on. It's usually marrying up several different things. And you know, I think in some ways the holy grail is still what the the precursor to SIM as we know it today, event correlation engines and tools and so forth, you know, the, the promise that they held was so exciting at the time, but really, really hard to pull off in real life. And, and I feel like after, I don't know, I first learned about that 15, 18 years ago, <laughs> like the promise still has not quite been realized, but if you can do it, it's amazing. You, you're a hundred percent right. It, it really takes time and dedication from, from teams. I mean, like, this is what we do, but I'm talking about teams like our clients or, you know, if whatever company that you work at, it requires dedication on getting that data and getting, and sometimes there's a lot of pushback on it. I've mentioned, as you pointed out before, egress firewalling multiple times, multiple places, and still to this day, get pushback on it and try to explain to them about baselining and how, how you can make this less painful. But if you have a team that's dedicated to the process, then, then you're going to come out a lot better well we've got a few minutes left and as promised we uh we should shift into our segment gold guidance and grievances so the way this works is we're going to ask each of you in turn for an example of something that you consider to just be wonderful that's your gold guidance suggestions advice that could be related to the story we just heard or it could be just general um heck it doesn't even have to be infosec and grievances, hey, we'll leave that wide open. Uh, <laughs> so um, I will say uh, let's go to uh, Steve because we, we heard from Champ last. So let's go to Steve and see what you got for us. So um, my gold and guidance are kind of um, married together here. Um the gold specifically, uh, you know, in the, in this field, one of the things that I love to see is the passion and the skill set of, uh, the newcomers to the field, um, be it through a degree course, or I'm sorry, a, uh, degree path or through certifications, um, someone that's made it their goal to get into security. Uh, they typically have a drive that I just don't see in, um, other businesses or other walks of life. Um, and that kind of leads directly into my guidance where, 
if you're looking to get into the security field, um, you know, don't get distracted by the, um, uh, the latest and greatest gadgets and tech. Uh, read the material. Uh, read the study material. You don't have to learn it at first. Just just read over it and see if it even appeals to you. Um, I've I've seen a lot of people that want to get into security, that they'll go through, they'll learn the material, they'll get in, and then they find out that they hate it. It's it's really it's not for everyone. But if you look at it and you fall in love with it, follow it. Um, and then kind of shifting gears to grievances. Um, I am not keen on this whole um, takeover of AI, <laughs> uh, chat GPT, uh, if we can say that one specifically. Um, but uh, AI is not an end-all solution. Yes, it can be a very handy tool, um, but I think it's way too young um, to be so heavily relied on. Um, and a lot of people are talking about implementing it into one thing or another and yeah watch out it's going to be part of bing soon so you might have to stop binging stuff if you don't like it well luckily i use google which i guess isn't much better per se <laughs> i've heard of them um i was but, an alta vista man myself oh uh, yeah I, I remember alta vista um, uh, i always asked like Jeeves back in the day that's <laughs> Jeeves. um I will say on the chat APT or chat GPT stuff is we did some experimenting with it. And so, for instance, saying like, sorry, but that was the best Freudian slip ever. I just have to say. I agree completely. What, what did I say? Chat I APT? It. Chat APT. <laughs> I love that. Mm -hmm. I want to steal that. Uh, well, I'm since you're letting me, letting me license the uh, QoS thing, I'll license this one to you and we'll call it even. So, <laughs> but um, uh, we were, I, I was playing with it and I'd say things like, explain to me CVE hyphen 2022 hyphen whatever. And it would explain it. And I was like, that's amazing. And then I said, how do you mitigate against CVE, blah, blah, blah. And it would tell me how to mitigate it until I realized it was totally full of garbage. And it was just putting words back that it thought I wanted to hear. It wasn't words even it wasn't even actually describing the CVE that I was referencing. And I remember being really disappointed, but think about how, how dangerous that is. Like if, if somebody uses that and thinks they're going to get a reasonable explanation from it, that it's, it's, it's a large language model. It's not meant to be truthful or factual. It's just meant to sound good. And I can see that that, that might be one of my grievances as well is people are going to think that it's factual and it's not. Well, it's a perfect segue. So, uh, so champ, take it away. So the first one is gold G O uh, L D. Uh, and I'm assuming you mean like what I find very useful, right? In awesomeness. Yes. Awesomeness. Awesomeness. I, you know, mine's pretty straightforward. Um, uh, two factor. I mean, in my job, I, I I'm, You'd be surprised. Well, probably actually you wouldn't be surprised. There's many organizations that don't take advantage of this. And to me, it's just mind blowing. Um, that's, that would be, uh, uh, where I would be with that on uh, guidance, egress firewall filtering <laughs> to kind of wrap back on the story, egressing, uh, understanding your traffic really makes a big, big thing. And my grievance is definitely when people don't do that in chat GPT. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, can't argue with those. Those are great. Um, it has been a blast talking with you guys. And, uh, it, you know, anytime I think you can go inside a story about how a, an attack and then its mitigation unfolded, there's something, somebody's going to learn something useful or a lot of something's useful from it. So, and it's just, it's gripping to hear how it goes, you know, kind of part by part. And you know what's, I'm glad you said that because you're 100% right. We've gone through this multiple times on different types of levels, everything from ransomware to uh, Office 365 breaches, stuff like that. And the thing that we always do, and I think would probably be uh, advice for anybody really, is you always walk away from it thinking, what could I have done better? And I think it's a good thing, but don't let it get you down. That's one thing that also happens. But we have these like debriefings where we sit down and say, where can we do better from a detection standpoint the next time this rolls up? What processes work? What different? What what didn't work? And I think in any kind of breach, that's like probably one of the most post-breach exercises that you can do rather than just walk away and say, okay, it's all cleaned up, business as usual, is to stop and say, no, what can we learn? How can we get better from this? 
Absolutely, that is critically important. Uh, learn from your mistakes and grow is kind of the critical thing to just be better in cybersecurity and be better at life in general. And, and learn from your wins too, right? Like how do you build from yes. strength to strength as well, building on your successes? 100% agreed. Yeah, but I have to agree with Tim. This has been a fantastic discussion. Although I, I think I would say this conversation has been the bomb or client exe. <laughs> <laughs> Sean wins. Sean yes. wins breaking badness. Yes. <laughs> Kelsey would be proud. Uh, Champ and, and Steve, for your edification, you've probably heard this if you've heard prior episodes, but Kelsey, well, let's put it this way. Her her social media handle is puns and roses, and that kind of tells you what you need to know. There you go. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I approve. <laughs> so, yeah, puns always welcome here. Well, uh, Champ Clark, Steve Drenning, thank you so much for being with us on Breaking Badness. And, uh, you know, hey, I, maybe we'll get a chance to talk to you guys in the future. And who knows if our paths cross in the physical world, um, maybe we can grab a tasty beverage sometime. Uh, I know that I would enjoy that. And uh, so thank you. And uh, I'll leave it to the rest of the group for any final words as we wrap up here. Thank you very much for having us. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. That's about all we have for this week. You can find us on Twitter at Domain Tools. All of the articles and IOCs mentioned today will be included in our blog post, which can be found at domaintools.com slash resources slash podcasts. Catch us every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific time when we publish our podcast and blog. We'll see you next week on another episode of Breaking Badness. Until then, remember, don't drink and click.